That song, Once Upon a Time, was called The Queen of Choruses. That was back at that time, I told you about, I think, a little last week. A different time in history, before the modern world became what it is today. When Epiphany was the most phenomenally celebrated holiday of the church year. I've not dug deep enough myself to figure out how that all fell apart, but I think I think this year Epiphany matters more than Christmas. I think that knowing that the darkness is here and Jesus Christ shines in the darkness and that counts for you and your pagan blood, your non-Jewish blood, your Gentile blood, your Goyim blood, that it is satisfactory in God's almighty sight, I think that's a big deal this year. It's been a big deal for me. And I can tell you, as I confess my sin to you this morning, I have always hated that song. It's not because of the song. It's because we sing it at half the pace it should go. It's not your fault. It's electricity's fault. And it'll take me way too long to explain that to you this morning. But if you give me a second, I'll try to prove it. Oh, morning star, how fair and bright. You shine with God's own truth and light, a glow with grace and mercy of Jacob's race. King David's son, our Lord and master, you have won our hearts to serve you only. Lowly, holy, great and glorious, all victorious, rich in blessing. Rule and might or all possessing. We don't sing like that because we listen to them. I don't know how else to say it. I'm going to get mad this one time and I won't be mad at you again. We're not here for you to like the music. We're here so we can hear about Jesus. And as we split our congregation next week on purpose again, from three to two, to try to consolidate, try to pull together the faithful here. We need to not be here for what we want. I want that song sung with rock and roll in a coliseum with a whole orchestra. I'm never going to get it. But I should stop complaining when I have to sing it, when I have a heartbeat back here playing it for me. The God who had someone write it so long ago has lasted 500 years. Try that, Madonna. So forgive me for my anger at myself. I need you to. I have for too long tried to be the one to save the congregations to whom I was sent. I think every man has to learn this if he's going to be a pastor, Mike. You think you're going to do it. And you're not. That song will come back when the Lord inspires us to sing it, and I can't make you. I think what we need more than anything is to slow down and even go past some of these great gifts. The hymnal, which you found this year, haven't you? What a gift in your house, is it not? But if we think we're going to rally Christendom around the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's hymnal, we've got another thing coming. 
We must rally around the prayers that God wrote for us. Yesterday on this channel, on the show I do Saturday mornings, there was a question. Are written prayers okay? The person said, I go to friends' houses who are Christians, and they say written prayers are not okay. What should I think? Now, there's nothing wrong with just praying. Please, don't mistake me. But do know that the natural cry of the human heart is to pray to Baal, or Kronos, or your clock, as we currently call him. May we all bow down and obey, be on time. Watch how often you say it. Baal is a fallen god. He's here. He can't run everything, but he is here. He's ticking, 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 old father time. You've seen his images everywhere. You need not be afraid of him. But you do need to know how much he's made this world chase the modern mind. And the modern mind would say something as foolish as, because I believe in Jesus Christ, I don't pray written prayers. This person's never looked at the Psalms, apparently. Not once. There's 150 written prayers in the smack dab middle of your Bible. Let it fall open. It's hard to miss. I am convinced this is a call to prayer, Christians, this year, this time. I'm going to try to co convince you of it just by letting you be in my mind for the last week. And it's not been fun. Someone mentioned to me after the service last week, which was fantastic, but they gave me a compliment. And they, they thanked me for standing up for things. And they said, you know, first they come for people who fall away, and eventually they come for you. And he was trying to encourage me, I think. <laughs> but out of my mouth came, I'm ready for him. Now, this is not about having guns. This is about the fear I've had that because we're going to allow for people to take masks off in one service here, over the next couple of years, this starts a catalog of events that leads me to jail. And I'll go, rather than make you wear a mask in the name of Jesus. Because I think that's a lie. So I've thought about that. I've feared, what does it mean to be put into a prison cell with some guy next to me? He's got a five-sided pentagram tattooed on what, his face? I mean, the kids are listening to that for music these days. You know what I'm going to do, though? I thought it through. I'm so thankful I had this fear. If I hadn't, I couldn't have prayed about it and thought it through. Now I have a plan. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to look at a guy in the eyes. First time, but hey, dude, my name is Jonathan McAdam Fisk. I'm a Christian. God is with me. So you go ahead. You do whatever you want. On the last day, just know he's getting me back. I'm going to go to bed now. Kill me if you like, whatever. See you in the morning. You should follow me. Good night. I'll probably be praying to Jesus all night long that night. But the next morning, you know what that guy's going to be? My friend. I'm going to run that prison, not with a gun, but with the tongue God gave me that is blessed with what Solomon has shown you. Makes sense. So if we're going to come together now at this time and really take a, a stand in the ground to pray for the people who still believe the United States of America is going to save them, who are cooped up in their homes, unwilling to see their loved ones out of fear they will die, 
and the belief that there will come a time when the United States saves them. At such a time as this, the hymnal will not be enough. It must be the Psalms. It must be the Old Testament. Deep thought about what the Trinity is, about how Jesus is not some new God. He's the old God of wood and stone in the flesh to die on the wood with the metal through his body so he could bleed it back out in breath onto you. And that breath is hope now, even though the darkness is so deep. There are so many things I want to tell you out of the Second Peter text, but that man who told me they were coming for for me, he caused me to fear jail. The next morning, Peter made me think about my death all week. That end bit. I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by a ray of reminders since I know that the putting up of my body will be soon. Every time I read that, that we, this week, the mystic in me, the pagan in me thought, oh, it's a sign from God that my life is nearing an end. I must be soon about to die. That emotion just arose in me naturally. Normally, I think I would have run from it. This week, I stepped back and I asked, well, am I really so sure? I mean, has, has Jesus told me that? No, he told Peter that. Okay. But it could happen. And I didn't want to let that emotion get away too fast. I held on to it. Every time I read it again, I think about it again. It could be today. Because the more that I've lived in the awareness that tomorrow might not come, oh man, the better today gets. Now let me just try to tell you that in a simple story rather than take you on my whole journey. But I know that in my life, I hear my children say, Father, could we, do you, would you? And I say, not right now, I don't have time. This week I realized I don't know the middle name of my grandfather on my father's side. I am Jonathan McAdam Fisk, son of Dale Bissell Fisk, son of Alfred Fisk. I felt a pang of Self-loathing, why had I never asked? Why did I think the Legends of Zelda was so much better? A man died when I was young. And my life has been one of being led by the nose by this culture. So it is what it is. But confronting that pain, to turn and then hear my son ask the question, will you tell me about Grandpa? Last night. Unexpected. And I heard out of my mouth come the words, maybe later. I, I said, no. And I sat down and I talked to him. Now again, this is what repentance looks like. You don't have to do it in front of people. I'm going to tell you, it hurts like the dickens right now. But I also know at the end of the service, I'm going to feel better than any of you. <laughs> I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be really, really happy. Because when you tell people that you're free from it, oh, it fills you with life. When you know that you're free from it, not because of you, because of the blood price paid to overcome all of what you've done. It washes you, binds you, lifts you up, and continues to feed you with the most miraculous of promises, if you'll listen to it. I have found the premonition of death this week to be a great thing. 
And I'm not asking you to necessarily think about your own death that much this week. But then again, when was the last time you did ask your father about his history? Or your mother, for that matter? When was the last time you sat down and turned it all off and prayed that all of what's going on right now would not lead to a nuclear winter that lasts 10 years and starves the planet? I've been doing that all week, too. Almost every day. With all the spirit I've got in me. Because I think it's possible on this planet. I think it's completely possible. And I'm really tired of panicking about it. And I figured I better ask Jesus, since he's in charge. And I've asked it this way. I hope you don't mind. Basically, I tell him to make it so whatever happens, this little area of Rockford in which St. Paul dwells becomes a light to the nations which rise in his, in his afterglow as we build up a library or whatever we can do to serve this poor people here. So I pray that it would go over us and hit only those that need to be crashed, if that's what God must do. I'm not the king. He is. Then I pray that if he's going to crush us to have that bomb drop right here in the middle. I don't know if you know this. Nuclear bomb, you want to get hit, not live through it, really. Um, study it. It's not pretty. So I've been praying for you <laughs> all week about that one out of fear of my own death and realizing where some of that fear is coming from. And then laying on my face before my Bible and saying, I don't even know if I'm ready to read this, Lord, because my heart cares only for me. And then knowing as I find this happening so I can come up here and tell you. I know it's only so that you can see my pain and it will give you less pain. And I'm pretty sure that's what a pastor is supposed to do when he points you to Jesus. Because you can see now I'm not your savior, right? Like it's really obvious. I'm just your brother. An older one, a younger one, dumber one, smarter one, all of the above sometimes. What I know is that what Peter's got to tell us here in chapter one, I hope we're not here all day. I'll try to not interrupt him too much. He is, he is golden here. Now he opens the letter, Simon Peter. All the apostles, like the ancient world, just open letters with their name. But notice how he uses two names, both his given name and the name that Jesus gave him. He calls himself a servant. Uh, I will continue to complain about Bible translations probably the rest of my life. They're so soft. The word is slave, bond servant if you must, but it basically means owned. Owned, not free. An owned apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Now here, you got to know, this is written to you. And it's written to you because you're a Christian. Not because you might be a Christian. Not because you're trying to be a Christian. You are a Christian. You have heard that Jesus has risen from the dead and said, yes, you're a Christian now. You've obtained a faith of equal standing with the slave apostle of Peter, who was the voice of the church. That's pretty cool. And how? By the righteousness of our God. Now, Lutherans hear that word. That's justification talk. That's law gospel talk. That's all grace alone. He did it for you talk. You've obtained a faith of equal standing with Peter's faith by the justification that Jesus has done for you on the cross. And his divine power there, verse 3 says, has granted us, us and Peter, us Christians, us the church of God, all things. Now, before you go too fast, how much is all things? Is it some things? It's all things. 
Now, I'll tell you what the Pentecostals do with this. They say, wow, he's granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Therefore, we can heal our diseases. Therefore, we can make as much money as we want. Therefore, we can get everybody else to be healed as well. Therefore, we can take over the whole earth. Therefore, we'll rebuild the temple and make the end of the world come. Therefore, we'll profit by our knowledge. That's the devil talking. Profiting by Christianity. He wants grace and peace to be multiplied to you. That, you can't do that by trying to make a profit. Every time you try to make a profit, you lose. When you barter, you will be convinced that you have lost. Although they have found that bartering makes it better than just buying it. When you buy it, you have a part of your psyche that knows you lost money. When you barter, the reason that exists is it makes people feel better. They go into the car lot and they argue it down. They think they got a deal. They're paying way more than they should. But we've done this to make ourselves feel good about our profiting from each other in the capitalist system in which we live. I am by no means, by the way, on a crusade against capitalism. I want to see a farmer's market show up on this corner to replace the supermarkets that are leaving the country or countryside. It's the side of Rockford. So I'm not against that. But I do think that when you go to make a market, if you do it to profit for yourself, eventually it will collapse because selfishness must. I know what Jesus tells us the church is going to have, even while everything else is collapsing, is grace and peace being multiplied. And now let me, let me make you learn some math. Liz Temple's not here this morning for me to laud mathematicians as the greatest of all people. Um, they are, listen to them when they teach you. If you add two to two, let's do it six times. You end up with 12, right? Although to get there, you multiplied it. Do it the hard way. Two plus two is four plus two is six plus two is eight plus two is ten plus two is twelve. That's addition. Multiplication goes like this. Two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two, sixty-four. Sixty-four to twelve. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God. What's that? It's of Jesus our Lord. That's what's that. And that word knowledge is going to show up again in a moment down below in verse 3. You can see it there. Knowledge of God and knowledge of him who called us. That would be Jesus and then also Holy Spirit talk as well. We know the Trinity always works together. But let me suggest to you that in this section here, that word knowledge is more powerful than, say, American knowledge or science knowledge or textbook knowledge or anything like that. This is connected to an old Hebrew word, yada, yada. It's the first word um, of Proverbs chapter 1, verse 2, right after Solomon's name. The first thing he says is yada, to know. And I'm pretty convinced it's the heartbeat of the entire book of Proverbs. And it is what it means to understand who God is. But what are you supposed to know about God? Is it about drawing the Trinity on a chalkboard? No, it's not about that. In fact, sometimes you're doing that, you might be doing the wrong lines and causing all sorts of chaos you don't even realize. So be careful with that kind of quote-unquote magic. What's it really about then? It's about being heard when you pray. The knowledge you have of God is that he hears every word out of your mouth. Did I tell you the story about when I was sitting on the porch this, this uh, summer sometime doing some reading? I can't remember what it was, that fell off my new house. I just bought this house about a month ago. It fell off my house and hit my leg. And I said, a pox on you. And I was pointing at my roof. 
I, I just cursed my roof. Now, you giggle, right? But think about it. For, you giggle because you don't believe it might have worked. I have a God who says, don't blaspheme. Because praying to him does work. The next thing I did was say, Lord, have mercy, you know. <laughs> so I'm not worried about it now because I know my God's bigger than curses. My God rules by blessings. And the blessing he has given you is to know that he is your father. One of the other things I learned from my son this week, he continues to teach me, is that a son will be afraid until he is convinced his father is behind him for his good. If he's afraid of getting in trouble with his father, he'll be afraid of everybody else. But if he knows his father is always going to like just say, hey man, turn around, go back to fight again. Well, then he can go do anything he wants. And whether or not your earthly father ever did that for you, I can tell you your heavenly father does, continues to, and will always outshine and exceed your earthly father. Earthly fathers, all we do is like I'm trying to do for you this morning, show you where I failed. And then when you ask the question, say, yeah, see, that's how I failed. Don't do it that way. That's what earthly fathers are for. The knowledge of God your father in perfection being your father, hearing your prayers, answering what you say means you do have to say it. And that's what Peter's going to kind of get into here when he's going to commend us not to be lazy here. Huh? Not to be lazy. But first, he tells you how great this, this knowledge is again. His divine power, verse 3. Divine power, supernatural divine power. The essence of God himself in eternity has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus who called us out of his own glory and excellence. Excuse me, called us to his own glory and excellence. By which then, this knowledge of who Jesus is, he is risen, God is your father, hallelujah, by which he has granted to us his very great and precious promises. There's more to know than that you're saved. That's the first step of believing. Now the Pentecostals do all this evil. They call it the first square of the God. Go, get away from that. But do know that you're not saved to sit on your butt. You're not saved to make yourself content with alcohol. You're not saved to gorge yourself on fine foods. And you're not saved to make all poverty in the world go away either. You're saved to listen. He has granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. This verse has caused trouble for people. We argue about this verse. Like big church bodies argue about this verse. Do we really get to have God inside of us? Everyone talks about him that way. I have the Holy Spirit inside me. Jesus lives in my heart. Okay, you know what that means then? It means you're not possessed by a demon. It means you are possessed by the Holy Ghost. Whether you're aware of this or not. You're like, well, if I'm possessed by the Holy Ghost, then why don't I do more better things? And why doesn't it all turn out the way? Because you're not listening. Well, I pray all the time, and I go around, and I read books, I think. I do all this stuff. I'm always wanting to. You're not listening. You must listen to the text of Scripture with the heart of a son not the heart of a hireling. And you can't do that until your pastor does it. And again, I'm pretty new at that part. 
It's hard not to be a hireling in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I'd say it may be impossible. They train us into it. Our bread is from this. I live from this. If this goes away, my family's hungry right now and I can't pay, pay my bills, right? I live like you guys do. Only my job is to be the guy who gets up here and shouts against the tyranny. I love that too, though. Don't get me wrong. But I know that I didn't love it. And that's the problem I want to share with you. I've learned to love the terror. Because I know whatever terror is there, however big that fear might get, the God who's behind me is bigger. It's kind of like trying to add a number to infinity, right? You ever do that as a kid? Make the number bigger than infinity? Well, it's still infinity. It just gets bigger still. That's Jesus. So whatever fear you've got, Jesus is a bigger God. And the more you own that, the more you leave it at his feet. You say, Lord, I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid of you killing me. I'm afraid of you letting COVID get to me. Well, at least you're being honest with your God then, aren't you? That goes a long way. To partake of the divine nature, I think, means to feast upon the holy blood of Jesus Christ as a mystery I cannot understand. But he has said, this is his body. This is his blood. Amen, Lord, you're the king. Forgive them not. They know not what they do. That's right, I don't. I'll do what you say. You say this, I won't add to it. I won't take away from it. So be it. And that this, God, son of man, as bread and wine, enters my mouth, And I partake, I fellowship, I take form under my maker, who is divine. Which means I'm no longer just a son of Adam, my middle name, by the way, again. But I'm, in fact, a son of God. I don't get to command the trees to obey me as some sort of pagan voodoo. I get to pray and know that the whole world, angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven are listening and trying to help me in the scriptures. You too, in the scriptures, kernel and shove and reflect your heartbeat and your steps and your fallen will into the rainbow of his promises. That's why you're here. That's always why you're here. He has directed your feet so that being one with him, him possessing you, it's not like you're going to go home and make up all the perfect decisions. He possesses you by showing you your mistakes. He possesses you, pulls you to the church where his word is to correct and conform and exhort and exhilarate you in this idea again. So what comes next? Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You could take this two ways. The Pentecostals say you eventually won't have any more sinful desire. They're wrong. You've escaped from the sinful desire that you will never be able to get rid of until the day you go in the grave. But the beauty is you've escaped from it with a story you can tell it. Now, if you're not going to tell the story of Jesus out loud, when your self-talk starts happening at you, you're not going to have a lot of luck. But if you go get a mirror and start preaching Christ and that you're a son of God at yourself, I promise you, look at me. You know I've changed this last year. I'm just listening to the Bible hard because I know we need it now. I don't expect you to be as much of a nut about it as I do, as I am. I expect you to know that I'm doing this for you and that thereby we're doing it together. And therefore, every little prayer and every single proverb that you put together where you are sends our heartbeats out as spirit and life and salt and light into the world. And we leave behind Jesus. And then we come back. That is church. And if, if you don't know, it's, it's here. 
but it's not everywhere. I fear it will be less and less places. I don't pray that. You have escaped the sinful corruption of the world by the knowledge that God is your father, even though you're a pagan at heart. Even though you worship nature and the stars and the TV and the clock at heart. He has nonetheless purged you so that these things cannot drag you down in him. He'll say that. You can't fall away in him. But that means this path, this growth like a tree. Notice how it's like a tree coming down the page as a poem of knots in a spiral, right? Uh, For this reason, make every effort. Oh, you can't see my page. See how they did it? It looks like a tree. I'll I'll explain later if you ask. (laughs) Uh, For this very reason, let me slow down and tell you what it shows us. So you're going to have a series of words, maybe less like a tree and more like a waterfall. Go on like this. It's going the other way. This way. Waterfall going across here with the camera. And um, I thought of a, like a root in a tree kind of does that too. Um, but what he's doing is he's leading you from knowledge as one way of thinking about my Christianity to other words that all also are ways to think about Christianity. What is a Christian? The first thing is they know God's their father. Okay, so that's the first one. But you wanna you wanna go past this. You don't wanna go past Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. You wanna go past yourself just being saved. Huh? For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Do you know what that is? I'm trying to think of it's weird because we definitely have virtue in our culture. The reason I like the Captain America movies is because Captain America was a virtuous guy. But what we don't do in our culture is teach about vice. We don't teach about the opposite of virtue, the things that are really wrong that cause problems. And that's the exhortation here Paul has, is to figure out the difference in your life where you are. Some of these things are eternal. Some of them are symbols, so the way that we send messages. But what you're not to do is just let your knowledge be your knowledge. It must have virtue with it. And with that, excuse me, um, faith with virtue, virtue then goes to the knowledge that we've already been talking about. So now you have a trinity of knowledge from those two up above coming down to the middle of this section here. So you're going to add to the virtue knowledge. That's kind of what I was just talking about. How in our culture, if you're like, well, I'm going to be virtuous. And you're like, well, I'll I'll figure out how to be virtuous. I'll turn on the TV and I'll learn how to be virtuous. You're not going to learn. No one's going to tell you. They'll sell you stuff. We're not going to tell you anything really honest. If they really knew virtue, they would not be making commercials. They'd stop that life. I know what that life's like, in fact. I, I mean, I've seen edges of it. It's, it's awful. I mean, it's always about winning. Oh, constantly. And, and so you just, you're just in pain the whole time when you're that kind of a person. But where would you go to learn the virtue? Well, this is just it. You got the Old Testament stories, which are not there to be moral dialogue. They're there to show you how these people looked for Jesus in their lives too. In the midst of times, you can't imagine, but that's why it's good to go there. It's good to be in a time that was real on this planet that isn't this fairy tale we live in now, where the water always works and the electricity always turns on. It's not always like that, and I will not promise you it will be that way till Jesus comes back. I have no guarantee of that in the Bible. I, I hope I keep the electricity till Jesus comes back. I like the running water. But I'd be lying to you if I told you these things are guaranteed. What is guaranteed that will be here is someone saying what I'm saying and people gathered to feast upon it. It doesn't have to be me. I can die and go away. It's going to be the same message. 
And that has been here more than 2,000 years. That's going all the way back to Adam, Eve, Noah, all that stuff. Same story, same religion. Old God, new wineskins now. Ha, he said that, didn't he? But same God who hears our prayers. So we add knowledge of that to self-control. And again, here's where this list really is law. And let me kind of ask you a little bit of a question here about that. Is law bad, Lutherans? In the law gospel paradigm, I know you've heard people stand up and go, law gospel, law gospel, Lutheran, law gospel. You're like, oh, that person's a Lutheran. They said law and gospel. What does it mean? What's law mean? There's a bunch of meanings and answers I can give you. But what I can tell you is not is bad. Law does not mean bad. Law means the way God made the world to be. The only reason things are bad is because we don't want to be that way. We worship our own hearts. So this is law. But it's, it's not the kind of law you should judge yourself with. And that's kind of the trick the Lutherans want you to understand. Is that the law is not there for you to say, okay, today I'm going to find out I'm a Christian. I'm going to live a self-controlled life and see if my Christianity is really there. Oh, I got angry. Oh, man, I'm not really a Christian. I don't love God very much. I prayed about it. I thought I was going to be better this time. That's what you don't want to do. What you want to do instead is say, Jesus Christ, I'm pretty confident that I don't have any self-control. I'm pretty confident that if I ask for self-control, you're going to put me through the world's toughest mutter version of self-control for me. But I'm going to ask anyway. I know that wisdom only brings suffering. Solomon said so. But I think that's there to keep the fool from reading anymore and learning what he needs to know because he's a fool. So I'm going to accept the suffering and pray, Lord, send me the self-control. And I'm going to walk out. I'm going to let God throw me the day. And I'm pretty sure within a year or two, because he's my God, I'll have more self-control than I did. But I can't go about it thinking, I'm going to make this happen. My self-control is a result of me having less control. And the word of God becoming, again, the platform for my mind. Now, let me, let me tell you about that again. I told the other two services this weekend already. This has been my sales pitch to you for a little while. Open the book of Proverbs once a day. Take one proverb. Read it. Write down what you think it means on a piece of paper. It doesn't matter if you're wrong. Don't look at it again. Go to the next one tomorrow. If you do that for three years... Here's what's going to happen. You're going to find out that you talk and people listen to you. And you'll like get to the end of the sentence and wait for them to keep talking. And they'll be like, because they want you to keep talking. And what happens when that happens is not that you're good or that I'm good. What happens is what happened to Peter. When they perceived the boldness of Peter and John, they saw that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished, but they recognized they had been with Jesus. If you will do what I'm asking you to do with a pen and a paper and Proverbs, here's what you're really doing. Over your lifetime, you have had an algorithm, a mathematical equation, building in your head from whatever media you absorb. It's built of words and languages and pictures, and you think with it. You think with the words and languages and pictures you've been taught to see by atheists and pagans. If you will begin injecting intentional proverbs into that madness, it will begin to cordon off and clarify and move away the stuff you don't want there. You will rethink things you haven't thought before because you'll find out a verse says a fool is like this and you're like, 
I mean, I thought about it before I got in the pulpit today. You know, it says, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say it right. Basically, a fool can't keep his mouth shut. I mean, you know who I am, right? Golly. And why, can't, why does a fool not keep his mouth shut? He just talks and talks and talks. He lets it all fall out. And so you get to see his foolishness. If he's touch-wise, he won't talk. And then you'll think he at least is kind of normal. Well, that's my curse again here. For me to be here before you and say, what will make people notice Jesus is when you notice Jesus. And you do that when you give attention to his word. And the book of wisdom that he has in the middle of this Bible is meant to be a processor to run your brain on. And the one that they taught me in the Lutheran school in this here United States of America out in Portland that I went to, well, I'll tell you, it's not the one Proverbs gave me back just recently. A lot more selfish, a lot less manly. I don't mean that in the butch kind of way. I just mean that in like the not fearing kind of way. How did I go to a Lutheran school that long and grow up afraid of Jesus? I should tell you this one too, though. You should know this. This year, uh, we have had two of our universities close in the Concordia University system. If you're new to the Lutheran LC, LCMS, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, um, we, we believed in education a lot. So we, we put grade schools all over the country. Everywhere was a church, there was a grade school nearby. We tried to make high schools. And this was largely before there was a public education system. So we had no competition. And we only had the pastor teaching during the week. So there were no teachers and healthcare benefits and things like that. Sports weren't there. It was a different world. But we did it. And we had about, uh, I forget if it's eight or ten universities that popped up all over the country as well. And we've seen two of those closed in this last year. And that's just a small number compared to the number of schools that have closed over the last 15 years. And as you at St. Paul, some of you know, it's hard to keep a school open in this world. It's even harder when you won't admit that it's hard to keep a school open in this world. But I want to tell you not about that. I want to tell you about Concordia, Portland. My father was a choir director for 27 years. I grew up in the gymnasium there watching the basketball games and things. And I, he moved away to San Diego when I was young, you know, 12, and, and we went with him, of course. Um, but I went back there to go to college, I went back to Concordia, Portland. And uh, I remember taking the New Testament class as a freshman. I didn't really want to. By that point, I pretty much didn't believe Jesus was my savior, I, I could say. I certainly wasn't living like I believed that. Um, but I had to go to this New Testament class, and so, okay, I did it. And there was a guy there who taught the class, the professor. He was a former choir member of my father at the same university, which is fascinating. It's like, it's all coming around. He had, he had babysat me, apparently. And he was very proud of that. I think he told me that. Um, but then he also told me this. He told me that everything I know about the New Testament is wrong. That at least five of the books aren't written by the apostles. That most of it comes from later. That nobody thought Jesus was God until the 200s or 300s. He's teaching all the kids at that Lutheran college that. That Lutheran college sending out letters every week saying, every month, every year, saying, send back money so we can tell people about Jesus. Hmm. Let the reader understand. If we are not going to go back to the source and fount, we are in trouble. And it will take self-control to go back to the source and fount. Your life will need to exercise self-control and discipline if you wish to read a proverb every day and read a psalm every day. You can't just, it doesn't do it for you. But then that builds you towards something else, steadfastness or fortitude. I like to think of fortitude. That's a good word. 
I've told my family and a couple of friends that the Sons of Solomon Psalms, these prayers you can say in the morning and uh, late morning and before dinner and at night, that my goal has been to make them my clock. I really want them to be my body clock. And I wasn't sure why I wanted this, but it's starting to bear out. I've been doing these psalms every day for about, uh, I don't know, three, four, five months, maybe a little more than that. Um, and what, what normally happens when you try to do something four times a day, like read the Bible four times a day, is you fail a lot, right? Like you just can't get to it. And you're like, oh, I didn't do it again. That's just guilt, nothing but guilt. Um, but that's why of the four times a day, I've always said, just start with three. And if you can't do the three, just start with one. Okay, so build where you're going. But as I have been uh, down in the depths of these prayers, what I have found is that the times now when I am most confused, like say it's 11 o'clock in the day, and I've done a lot of study, I've done a lot of praying for y'all, and I'm not sure what to do next, I'm kind of wandering around my study, and I don't know what to do. If I can remember, oh, I haven't prayed, and I go down and pray my psalms, I come up and it's, oh, the day starts, here we go. It actually, it actually works as a clock. It's like an alarm. It resets. I trick it. I, I get the same music every time I pray at the different times, and I let it run after that, so it kind of turns me into a different focus. But that focus is not about me or the music. In the morning, it's about remembering that Habakim, Joshua, Kahar, Zion, Lo, Yamot, Lolam, Yashev, that Jesus Christ is like Mount Zion, and that those who trust in him will never be moved. That's a great way to start the day. When I close the day, my mind is not filled with haughty things or things too great for me, Lord, which is actually a confession of sin that it has been all day, but now I'm going to go to sleep, and if he doesn't take me through sleep, I die. They're beautiful things. They're a beautiful clock. I'll confess this to you, too. I'm not sure how it's going to work out. Please don't fire me. I, uh, I unplugged the clocks in my study, both of them. I've had a little card in my uh, kind of note card stack I read through and write on all the time to study the scriptures with as a tool. And one of the cards has been asking this, so I'll ask it to you. Um, if you didn't have a clock, would your God still be with you? Now, I wrote that like a month ago as like a frivolous thought, like a joke. Like, ha I probably worship the clock a little bit. And the last time I saw it, I mean, I've seen the card multiple times, I unplugged the clocks. I think I did it so you don't have to. That's why. I'm doing it so I can tell the story about it now. And I can tell you that you can live without a clock. I've been doing it for a week. The only thing I did was break an hourglass. That's, that's the big bad thing that happened. Now, I don't think you need to live without a clock. I think you have to follow the clock. I was here on time this morning. But I think you should think about the difference between being on the clock, you know, like a drug, and being in good time, like duty and respect would teach you to be. Listen to what you say. You'd be amazed what your body is telling you that you don't know you're doing to yourself. Fortitude is how you break through into godliness. Godliness doesn't mean to be God. It means to be pious, to be aware you're not God, really. Godliness then gives us what we're after, I think, most of all in life. Brothers, which of course means family. It's never just men, but it's all. Because man and woman are made to go together. She comes from him and he comes from her. So that affection, that camaraderie that is there when people know they're a people, which is what we don't know as the United States today, but what you do know as those who feast on Christ today, that brotherly affection then 
that love for somebody else is what can lead you to the agape, the self-sacrificial love that he concludes with. And this is where you have been with someone long enough and know them and love them enough that you will sacrifice your heart for their good. You will let them get away with something or you won't tell them they have to be the way you want them to be. Because you know that to do that is to crush them. And you would rather crush yourself and save them. Now, I don't mean save like I confessed earlier. I simply mean be the one who stands there and takes the pain with them. I'm not going to go into why I'm going to say the next thing I'm going to say, but somebody shared it with me this morning twice, two different people, so I will share it. One of the things we're missing most in the world right now is touch. Social distancing is dehumanizing. If you put a monkey in a cage with a doll, little baby, but he has all the food he needs, he's got a doll that looks like his mother, monkey dies. You put a human in there with a mask on, monkey's fine. Helps with the smile. They did a study on that one too. Of course, we're taking those away, aren't we? A little upside down rainbow you need to see to feel better. We feel alone right now. So let me encourage you this. If you do not feel safe enough to shake hands or hug your friends here as you go, make sure at home you're taking time as humans to touch. I don't mean sexually, although married couples, yes, I actually do. But thank you for laughing. Whoever laughed. It's true. It's good. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. But what we need is not sexual touch. That's what the world has shamed us with. That's why all the kids are dressing backwards. They don't know what touch is. They're alone and they're weird and they think they're the wrong thing. So spend some time just like sitting by your kid with your arm around. Let them know you're there. Exchange that warmth of heart, the heartbeat, the energy there. And then maybe open those Proverbs and talk. Because verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. In there's that knowledge again. In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be ineffective or unfruitful? I would contend it's about what we've done for the last, I don't know, 150 years as American Christianity. Ineffective and unfruitful. A lot of heyday, a lot of noise, and a lot of salted feels. But before we worry about what we're going to do, I want to hear, verse 9, the warning that whoever lacks these above qualities, if you don't want to supplement your faith with virtue... You are so nearsighted that you are blind. You have forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. And this is something we need to recapture a little bit. We don't want to be rude with it. And our idea is never to be rude, or our goal is never to be rude. But we do have to recognize that there is such a thing as a fool. The fool is ultimately not a Christian. He is so nearsighted that he is blind, and you should not follow him. You should not let him speak in your assemblies. That's something we've forgotten. We've forgotten. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. This week, I will deep dive for you on election. I can tell you. Here, look. I'm even prepping it today. Election. If you want to know what we teach about election, you need to go look at this resource. This is a thing called the Book of Concord. It's not the only copy of it that that we have in our family. And if you've seen one out here, it's got like the, the maroon side and gold lettering. This is the one that Meredith got at Concordia University in Irvine, California. For her class, right, way back when, and I stole it from her when I went to the seminary. And uh, the first time I saw this book, 
I got mad at it. I didn't quite throw it like I threw my hymnal, but I, I threw it on her desk. And I said, why do we need these doctrines of men? I hadn't read it. I read it at the seminary. Don't take it. <laughs> Mine. This is my confession. This is what I believe the Bible says. Now, I will not take this over the Bible any day. But if I want to know what the Bible says about a topic as insane as election, it makes me happy to know there's a whole section where they fought about it 500 years ago, tooth and nail. They discovered every passage and argument against or for divine election, double predestination, and free will. They hashed it all out, and they wrote it out for you, and they said, well, we think the Bible says this. So this week, I'm going to go look at that more, because when I saw that word election today, I remembered how every time I try to teach that word, I scare people. And that's not what that word's there for. It's not there to scare you. Peter doesn't say, make your calling an election sure just in case it's not. He wants you to see it. He wants you to know it's there. He wants you to hear about it all the time. And that's what happens when you supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, and discipline in the scriptures. Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. That means because you are chosen by God and you'd be screaming and walking away from me if it were otherwise. Because you are chosen by God to believe. If you practice and take it as a win, get that if out of there. When you practice these qualities, they are the path to not stumbling. This isn't about falling away. This is about how you walk in this life. That when you trip, you get up. When you trip, you get up. When you trip, you get up. Pastor Cypress was very kind to me at the first service this morning. My orange shoelace had become untied. and He thought I would fall. And he told me that it was untied. And it caused me to kneel before my king here unexpectedly and tie my shoe. His looking out for me reminds me of what I said earlier here, this, this week of pondering my own death. So as I move toward a conclusion this morning, and before I, I finish really by pointing you to Christ in the gospel reading, um, I do want to say, if you're not already praying for me, please do. I have learned that it is my job to be the holy man. That doesn't mean I'm better than you. It means I'm weirder than you. It means I read Hebrew. And I think it's fun to pray for three and a half hours. I don't think you want that. But what I want to give you is a little taste of it that fits right into your home economy. So I need you to pray for me. Because I can figure out what I need from this book, but my goal here is to help each of you figure out how to make it not be something I have to tell you, but something you can't wait to tell other people. And that then it needs to not be about Jonathan Fisk. It needs to not be about you and your last name, whatever that is. Because if you were to live according to Solomon's wisdom and do all that Solomon had ever done, and you should read about it, it's just amazing what that guy did. 40 years of a good kingdom with no war and enough gold that he's building oxen that hold a basin of water. It's like gigantic and they're solid gold. They're making the temple with like gold screws. Where is it now? It's been torn down twice. By God. What does it profit to gain the whole earth and forfeit your 
your soul. Now here the, the English in the ESV says life, which is very close to what the Hebrew equivalent would be, nephesh, or ruach also would work, but nephesh is, is life and spirit. Ruach is wind, spirit, breath. Both are words used of the Holy Spirit and of man. Um, but the New Testament word here is the word suke. Now, it's often translated as soul, and if you've been around, you know, soul's not my favorite word. I'd prefer ghost or spirit, actually. And the word I really would like is the word, word um, psyche, psyche, like psychology, because that's the word, suke, psyche, the power of the mind. The problem in English is that to tell you what this is really saying then about psyche is to tell you that you are a psychic. You have a power to foresee the future and pray about solutions that God will answer. But see, that word's bad, right? Psychic is what pagans do. Do you see how they flip the words upside down? So the point here is not that I would send forth my head to control the world. The point is that I would realize I have a spirit in my body who is me. And my body, while it can pour all the stuff it wants into it, doesn't necessarily need that. And the spirit will tell me if that's the case. So if I am depressed and struggling and trying and not knowing why, I need to know that I'm not taking care of my head, my inner life, my psychology. I don't care what you call it. Call it your soul. The point is the modern world has convinced us we don't have them. And what's hurting right now is your soul. And what feels good when you hear about Jesus is your soul. So let me send you on your way with this. When he says at the end of, or I guess it's the beginning of chapter 9, verse 1, the end of the reading, Truly I say to you, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they say the kingdom of God come with power. You should take that as meaning that you will see the return of Jesus Christ with your own eyeballs. That you will look upon the desecration of the wicked, but with the vindication of being one purchased by the blood price of Christ. That the grace of his atoning sacrifice on the cross has washed away all of your iniquities in God's sight. And he's adopted you as an heir and a son. So if you will claim to be a royal priest in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, then I encourage you this week, seize your prayers with both hands. Grab them tight, like a weapon, like an arrow that you shoot back at the devil as he shoots his arrows at you. And see if you aren't more of a demon hunter than you ever dreamed. In the name of Jesus, amen.